Welcome, everybody, to the Braille Institute's monthly vision lecture. And tonight, we're very, very fortunate to have Dr. Cal Tawanzi. Dr. Tawanzi, he's a graduate of Tulane University, and he is one of the renowned retina surgeons in the United States. Dr. Tawanzi, he specializes especially in working with children in the Southern California area, and he truly is one of the hardest working surgeons that I've ever met. So welcome, Dr. Tawanzi. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and you know, I know that you just got out of surgery tonight and it's 7.30, so we mm-hmm. really are very, very appreciative for your time. No, it's my pleasure. I enjoy uh, most of all talking to, to teachers and parents, and uh, so this is a rare opportunity, and uh, uh, it's, it's very nice of you that you've you've gathered everyone together through telephonically this way so we can reach as many people as possible. So it's a great opportunity, and uh, I'm thrilled to do it. Yeah, you know, we have an audience, you know, that's nationwide tonight, so that's something that's really, really nice. Fantastic. Well, you well, know, one of the things that I, I see most often as a low-vision optometrist is that we see just a greater number of children who have retinopathy of prematurity. And yes. can you describe for all of the listeners out there, what is retinopathy of prematurity? Certainly, Bill. Uh, retinopathy of prematurity is a potentially blinding condition that uh, affects infants. Um, and these are infants that are born prematurely. And um, it's actually uh, the most prevalent uh, treatable cause of, of uh, blindness in babies throughout the world. And um, there are different regions in the world that are uh, affected differently. Uh, there's right now the, the world Horth, uh, the World Health Organization has recognized that there's there's a uh, they're calling it the third epidemic of retinopathy of prematurity, which is starting to affect sort of uh, countries like China and India that are um, rapidly progressing in their intensive care units for babies. So it's and, kind of a really a, a double-bladed situation that these premature babies that don't have developed lungs, we need to provide them with oxygen, but that elevated oxygen affects the development of the blood vessels of the retina. Is that right? That's, that's correct. That is absolutely correct. And, you know, many efforts have been done to try to optimize the oxygen situation. And here in Southern California, actually, um, some of the leading work has been done in, in that area um, to try to titrate the number, the, the amount of oxygen delivered uh, to the baby, um, such that you only give as much as is necessary. You keep the, the saturations lower um, in general, and also when uh, the lungs have a problem, such that uh, extra oxygen is needed. Well, it's it's only given for a short period, only as long as that baby needs the oxygen, and then it's and it's turned back down, it's dialed back down as quickly as possible. So th- those types of measures have uh, reduced the incidence of severe ROP in um, many babies that were getting it, um, you know, more pr- more prevalently 
uh, five years ago. Um, but simultaneously, what's happening is that our units are uh, increasingly successful in, in sustaining smaller and smaller premies. So, so now that uh, you know, we, five years ago, we we would see pr- predominantly kids in the you know 24 to 28 week gestational range. Uh, developing ROP, and and now those kids, uh, the majority of them are not developing serious ROP, but now they're sustaining smaller and smaller babies, you know, as small as 21 weeks um, gestation. And so as their technology advances um, in the the NICU, um, we have to come up with, you know, more sophisticated and better ways to treat ROP. And so... Uh, you know, we are doing that. We're um, involved. There, there have been several studies that have been uh, multi-center uh, prospective randomized trials that have been performed within the past five years. Um, the most remarkable uh, was the ETROP study, the early treatment for ROP study, which was uh, published um, in December of 2003. And um, a study that I'm currently involved in right now using pharmacologic methods to treat ROP for very severe posterior disease. And that study is called the the BEAT-ROP study, B-E-A-T-ROP study, which is a um, collaborative, prospective, FDA-approved, randomized study um, using uh, a medicine called uh, bevacizumab, or its trade name is Avastin. Um, this is a drug that, that inhibits the, these abnormal blood vessels, and we've been in, injecting it in the eyes of, of very small babies with very severe uh, posterior retinopathy of prematurity. Wow, that's... Um, and that's that's it's it's actually been met with uh, remarkable success so far. We've presented it at the uh, World uh, ROP Congress um, last November and have um, are in the, the process of trying to, to publish the data now because we've done over 150 cases uh, with very very positive results of, of using this drug over standard laser treatment. So um, that that's exciting you know research that's going on right now and, and also the classification of the disease is being <clears throat> better understood. Um, there was previously just ROP was just, you know, it was either um, typed as uh, uh, threshold or pre-threshold or just uh, non-threshold ROP, and it was, it was categorized by uh, the stage and, and the number of clock hours involved. But now we have uh, subtypes of ROP. Uh, there's the traditional ROP, and then there we have smoldering ROP, which is kind of a delayed form of ROP that's associated with um, uh, lack of <clears throat> blood vessel growth without some of the more aggressive pe- features, and it tends to affect older babies. And then we have this aggressive posterior ROP, also known as APROP, which is the most uh, serious and, and devastating form of the disease, and, and um, that's what's occurring in um, some of these uh, very small 
preemies or preemies that have uh, multi-organ disease that have systemic problems um, that can exacerbate the retinopathy. Well, Dr. Tawanzi, can you describe then when these blood vessels are growing abnormally, they're growing into the vitreous gel of the eye, Yes. What happens? What causes the vision impairment? Is it that the retina doesn't get enough oxygen so the retina dies, or is it scar tissue that's developing? Yeah, that's a good question, Bill. <clears throat> what typically happens is um, the retinal vessels grow out to a certain extent uh, from the center of the optic nerve, um, and um, we have a classification of zone um, that tells how far out the, the vessels have grown. There's three zones. One, uh, which is the closest into zone one, is the closest into the optic nerve. Then zone two is kind of the middle range, and we divide zone two into uh, posterior, middle, and anterior zone two because it's the largest zone. And then there's zone three, which is the periphery. So the vessels will typically grow out to a certain zone uh, area. And the the retina um, between the optic nerve and that leading edge of vascular development is typically well nourished retina that has has a um, a good blood supply. The retina further out from the leading edge is malnourished and has no blood vessels. Um, so. That that peripheral retina may be responsible for part of the, the peripheral visual field, but the most critical retina is the central part, which is already vascularized. And our goal is to try to pre preserve that vascularized retina. And when these blood vessels start to grow outside of the the retina into the gel, then they start to contract and bleed. And there's kind of a vicious cycle that can develop with these vessels, uh, these abnormal vessels that grow out. They start to communicate with one another and form a shunt. In other words, the vessels uh, communicate directly between arteries and veins and don't have normal capillary beds. The capillary beds are what nourish tissue, but these vessels do not have capillaries. They don't nourish tissue. They just communicate with one another, and they they uh, become a, a kind of a high-flow vascular system, um, and these vessels, as they grow, um, they, leak, they leak fluid, um, protein, and, and lipids leak out from the vessels. They don't have normal... Um, uh, barriers uh, that, that keep the fluid in, so it leaks out, it leaks into the vitreous gel, and that causes, causes a biochemical reaction in the, in the gel so that the gel contracts and fibrous scar tissue forms. And this scar tissue, as it contracts, it will lift the retina from its normal position. And um, we're, we're concerned about the retina that's vascularized in, in the center part in zone one and in, in that critical area where the macula is. So if it contracts sufficiently, um, it will lift the retina from its uh, pigment layer because the retina actually is not fixed down 
there's a potential space between the retina and the pigment layer underneath it. And so as, as, as this traction forms, the retina elevates and fluid accumulates underneath the retina. And that can, that can be exacerbated by additional leakage of proteins from these vessels. So it becomes what we call a combined exudative and tractional retinal detachment. In other words, the, the, the blood vessels are leaking, uh, which creates exudates. And um, there's traction forming because these blood vessels have fibrotic uh, contractile elements, and these lift the retina. And the retinal detachment is what causes the loss of vision, uh, especially in the central retina. And, um, you know, when retina detachments occur in an older population, we can generally fix them and... Um, if the retina detachment has only been there for a short period of time, the vision, almost all the vision can return back. Um, it's a different situation with a baby. Uh, once the retina starts to detach, there are some some critical changes that occur um, in the, the health of the photoreceptors, the pigment layer underneath it, and also the neurologic development of the baby, such that Reattaching the retina, well, it's it's associated with some visual gain, but it's not uh, it, it's it's dramatically less than if the retina had never detached. And so one one of our main goals is to ne- is to never allow the center of the retina to detach where we have the macular function. Um, the, that's the most critical area for vision, and. Um, we try to prevent that from detaching. If it does detach, we can we can try to reattach it, but it takes months of intense therapy, which you guys are experts at, uh, to try to to maximize the vision, and, and it's often less than optimal um, when that happens. So now, when you perform surgery to try to save the center of the retina, I know that some patients they will have laser. Other times they will have uh, a freezing technique. And mm-hmm. can you describe for everybody what are some of those most common types of procedures that you use as a surgeon to save the center of retina? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Um, the, the freezing techniques, uh, also known as cryotherapy, was the original way that that retinopathy prematurity was treated, and it was first. This was first done in a multi-center randomized prospective clinical trial, which is the highest level of of scientific evidence that one can do. And and actually, it's funny, that that study was one of the first um, studies of that type in all of medicine. Um, It was was designed uh, and executed by the NIH through multiple centers throughout the country. And um, they used freezing treatment to um, to treat the, the the retina that has no circulation, that retina in the periphery, and the reason they they thought that this would work, uh, well, there there's some ev- there was some evidence from other retinal vascular diseases that if you can can treat, um, for example, diabetic retinopathy, you can treat it that way, uh, and there was evidence that, that it would cause the abnormal bl- blood vessels to shrink. 
and um, there was some understanding that 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 retina that has no circulation in the periphery is responsible for driving the ROP disease process by secreting growth factors in the eye. Growth factors are basically uh, biochemical uh, agents that that are released um, that travel within the eye to the circulation and and cause them to grow in a certain way. And uh, so uh, the thought was that eliminating that avascular retina uh, with freezing treatment would cause the abnormal blood vessels to shrink away. And it actually worked, um, but it, it wasn't ideal. It didn't work uh, in as many cases as we'd like, but in general, it reduced, it reduced the incidence of uh, poor visual outcome by, by at least 50% uh, using cryo-treatment. Uh, there were some problems associated with, with the cryo in, the, in that it caused a lot of inflammation in the eye and um, uh, it, it contributed to some scar tissue formation, even though overall it diminished the scar tissue. There was an immediate acceleration of the scar tissue before it got better. Uh, and um, so that was the, the standard of care for about a decade until uh, peripheral laser. Uh, became available, and that happened in the late 80s. We uh, there were um, laser instruments that now could be um, could be attached to a, to a headset and um, could be used through the pupil. The laser could be the laser energy could be delivered through the pupil without having to make any incision, and one could treat the uh, that same peripheral retina with with indirect laser uh, treatment, and um, when when we saw the results with laser, it was kind of a no brainer that laser was better than cryo treatment. It was associated with a lot less inflammation, and so there was actually never any formal study done um, to to compare laser versus cryo. Everyone tried it. And it was clearly obvious that this was a superior treatment. And so so around the early 90s, everyone switched from uh, cryo to laser, um, except, and there's some exceptions. One exception is, of course, if if you're in a part of the world that doesn't, you know, have access to a laser, well, it's certainly acceptable to do cryo. Um, it's also uh, reasonable to do cryo if uh, the retina has already detached because cryo is safer than laser in that situation because laser can create holes in the retina, whereas cryo does not. Or if you've already done laser and the disease process has, has failed to respond adequately, then one might consider doing cryo. So those are, those are um, the, the two um, preventative treatments that we have, and they're, they're kind of... Uh, laser is kind of the, the, the mainstay of, of ROP treatment right now. It's, it's what saves the most vision um, and what prevents retinal detachment. Of course, once the retina does detach, we have a vitreous surgery to offer, um, and I can talk to you about that if you're interested. And also, we have now this new 
um, drug Avastin, which we're using um, instead of uh, laser, and I can I can talk to you about the differences uh, there as well. Yeah. Now, what is the time period that parents, let's say a parent just has a, a newborn who is 24 weeks gestation, and uh, how how soon should the retina specialist go and look at the child in the neonative intensive care unit, and how is there a, a safe period after the fact that you, there's there's less to worry about, or should they really be seen every week by a, a retina surgeon for the first year of life? How, how often do they need to be right. monitored? Well, <clears throat> well, we generally um, don't um, look at the baby in the first few weeks of life because during that time period, there's not a lot to see. The the, the vitreous is still very immature. It's it's a hazy view, and retinopathy or prematurity does not uh, develop in the first uh, four weeks of life. It takes some time for this process to evolve. In fact, one of the one of the uh, peculiarities of ROP as compared to other diseases is that it follows a typical time course. So um, you, you don't usually, uh, you, you don't screen babies before uh, they, they've they reached four weeks of age. Uh, you know, the, the, the standard uh, um, protocols for screening, wait till the child is four weeks of age or 32 weeks post-conception um, to start screening. But once once those four weeks have evolved, um, if that process of, of vaso obliteration, where the, where the 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 normal vessels that are programmed to to develop in the retina have been exposed to oxygen and now they've constricted and become irreversibly blocked, if if that's going on, it will start to manifest um, uh, between four and and eight weeks. Uh, of life and and so we we go to the NICUs and we screen all all at risk babies and basically the babies at risk are those born under 32 weeks gestation or under birth weight of 1500 grams or sometimes we screen even larger kids if they've had a stormy course in the unit if they've had a lot of oxygen or a lot of metabolic or septic problems so we we look at those babies and um we look uh with the indirect ophthalmoscope and we're able to dilate the pupils and and look through the uh to the back of the eye and see how the retinal blood vessels are developing and if they're uh if they're just immature but there's no ROP forming we typically see them uh every 2 weeks and we and we follow them until the blood vessels have matured, and matured means that they've reached all the way to the periphery. If, if the if the vessels have not reached all the way to the um, the edge of the retina, which is called the aura serrata, if, if they if they don't reach all the way there, then there's still an area of retina that has no blood supply that could potentially form retinopathy and prematurity. So. So we need to check those babies uh, typically every two weeks until the, the vessels reach the periphery. 
Or if we start to see signs of ROP and there's a staging system, the first, the first sign that we might see is, is that there's a demarcation between the, the, the uh, retina that has circulation and, and that that doesn't have circulation. That's stage one. And when it becomes that demarcation starts to become thicker and more elevated, that's stage two. And then if you get vessels growing into the vitreous, that's stage three. If we start to see those changes, then we will uh, screen the baby more frequently. And, it, and that may be weekly in some cases. And if it's a very aggressive case where, for example, we're seeing the vessels become tortuous and dilated, which means that the shunt is building up um, and uh, there's um, hemorrhage and and exudate, which is leakage of fluid. If we see all these factors, we might screen the baby even more closely, uh, as close as every day or every other day as necessary. So, um, you know, we have, we have to um, coordinate our visits and time them uh, in, a, in a fashion that's appropriate for each child and, and then be ready to intervene um, as soon as we think the the uh, retinopathy has reached a stage that needs treatment. And really the standard is to, to be able to treat this child within a day or two once we decide treatment is necessary. And usually um, treatment is, is necessary around 34 to 37 weeks post-conception age. That's one of the things about retinopathy or prematurity is regardless of how or how how premature the baby was, whether they were born at 22 weeks or 24 weeks or 26 weeks, they're likely going to require treatment around 33, 34 to 37 weeks post-conception in that time range, depending on what criteria you, need, you use for treatment. Well, that's really, you know, very, very nice and convenient in a lot of ways because it really alerts the, the doctors when to bring in the Yeah, it is convenient in that way, um, in that it, it there is kind of a tempo that we follow, and it's, it's, and it's kind of... I'm sorry, Dr. Swansea. We could please mute our phones and press star six. We tend to, we tend to get in a pattern. Uh, those of us who do a lot of ROP screenings, we, we, can, we can anticipate the disease, and we can predict well ahead of time which babies are going to need treatment and and approximately when they're going to need treatment and so we can we can usually alert the neonatologist and the parents that that things are going in that direction and uh it is a disease that that if you study it and do a lot of it you'll understand it and um sort of uh be able to recognize it early and inter- intervene early and the lessons of time have, have, have taught us that, that early intervention is, is, is very helpful in this condition in, in preventing uh, the, the disease. It's, it's much easier to um, anticipate and, and intervene er, uh, early rather than treat once it's gotten advanced, then it becomes difficult. Now, I know that the new medication, uh, Avastin, that you're talking about, 
that is something that can prevent the formation of these leaky blood vessels, and that could prevent the center of the retina from detaching. But are there new research uh, protocols or studies that are being done that might be able to help some of the children who are already 12 months or 2 years old that might bring back some of their vision? Hmm. That's a that's a good question, a tough one. Um, kids who um, who have have lost vision, well, it, it it really depends, Bill, on on why they've lost vision, and um, you know if if they if they've lost vision from retinal detachment, for example, well, we certainly offer patients um, surgery for retinal detachment. Um, and even if they're several years old, if they if they haven't been operated or if they've been operated, and they still have persistent retinal detachment, that's something that that um, you know I I tend to specialize in, and and we have patients come from from all over the country and the world to to have surgery uh, to try to reattach the retina. Now you know we we can achieve anatomic success in many of those cases. Of course, the vision, the visual results are not uh, nearly as good as if we had prevented retinal detachment from the fir- in the first place. But certainly, we fight and try to, to to get every little bit of vision because kids are remarkable in that they, whatever you give them, um, they will make maximum use of it. So it's worthwhile trying to preserve even light perception or hand motion vision or try to get get that back or count fingers vision in a child. Um, now, so so that's one of the causes of, of, of vision loss in kids with ROP. Uh, many of them will also have neurologic issues that, that may be responsible for some vision changes, especially if they've had a history of... Uh, um, you know, intracranial problems like like hemorrhage, intraventricular hemorrhage is common. Uh, paraventricular leukomalacia is common. Uh, hydrocephalus is common, and, and that can impact the the cort, the visual cortex, uh, which is the higher the higher centers in the brain that that process vision, as well as the optic nerve. So, um, you know, those issues are harder to change surgically. Uh, in any way, uh, but but many of those those um, conditions do respond to vision therapy, and that's that's how um, you know the Braille Institute is so fundamentally important in in developing vision in these kids. Um, so that's that's uh, you know a second issue. There's always um, other issues such as uh, amblyopia or lazy eye, refractive uh, changes, and so forth. Um, so, you know, all of these factors come into play, and, and we try to do everything possible to maximize the vision. But, but um, you know, fundamentally, if, if you have a retina that has no circulation, we don't, so far we don't have a way to restore circulation in that retina, either pharmacologically or surgically. Um, there are um, there are things that are uh, actually very exciting um, research techniques that might be able to get around that. Uh, One is um, uh, the retinal chip, 
which is an electronic grid that's being devised at several centers throughout the world, including uh, the leading center, which is at USC under Dr. Mark Humayan, where, where um, electronic grid is, is implanted on the retina and, and the retina is visually, is electronically stimulated to, to pr- produce a, uh, an array of, of, of lights that are called phosphenes that, that can give sort of uh, artificial vision. And, and there's a lot of thinking that kids with ROP that have um, never had good visual function may benefit from the retinal chip. And then the other is um, transplantation um, through stem cells. And um, there's, uh, there's several centers that have done sort of rudimentary retinal uh, transplants using stem cell therapy. Um, in fact, there's one, several several of our listeners are apparently from Orange County. There's one investigator um, at Children's Hospital of Orange County who has has done a lot of pioneer work in, uh, in animal retinal transplantation. And I see that, that the use of stem cells to try to regenerate the retina is something that that should be. Um, uh, it's theoretically feasible. It's it's been done on sort of lower level retinas, and will probably within the next ten to, ten to fifteen years, will probably be having um, you know human involvement with some of these studies. So. Wow, that's- that's really, really exciting, and I have adult patients who did have the implant from Dr. Humayun, and these are people who are totally blind, and it really made a difference. And the thing I want all the parents and teachers to understand out there is that I, as a person who is totally blind, I never realized how important even just the ability to see light was. When I was an eye doctor practicing, I thought there was really not too much of a difference if a person just saw light or no light. But as I was going through my own blindness, the difference of what it, what help it is to be able to see light or to see hand movement, um, it's really, really great. It's really huge. I, 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 I see it in my patients as well, and, and it's, uh, you, you can't underestimate the importance of that. And, you know, you've, you've totally lived through it, Bill, so you, you, you are the best spokesman for that. Well, this has just been some really great information, and at this time uh, we should open it up to questions. We have about 10 minutes left for Dr. Tawanzi to answer some questions, and if we hit star six, we could unmute your phone, and we'll, we'll go ahead and take some questions. Is that all right, Dr. Twanzi? Absolutely. I, I can stay as long as, as you want. <laughs> You're going to be Thank in trouble. Thank you so much. <laughs> I know, really. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Twanzi. You're welcome. Okay, do we have a question out there? I have a question. Yes, please. Marissa calling. Hi, Dr. Twanzi. Um, I'm wondering, my children, both of them, are they have LCA. And I'm wondering if any of the treatments and therapies you were talking about in regard to the ROP patients could also apply to children with LCA. Well, LCA, which uh, for our listeners uh, labors congenital amaurosis, uh, it, it's it's a different disorder than retinopathy or prematurity in that it's it's really uh, a metabolic condition 
where you have uh, a problem with um, the processing of of, uh, of of light information, and it's usually due to an enzyme defect. In other words, there's a there's a missing protein that's due to a missing gene, and actually this condition ha- is probably the one that's going to be re- revolutionized the most in, in the next few years because it's amenable to gene therapy. And uh, as you know, there's been some remarkable work out of uh, the University of Pennsylvania uh, eye group, and there, uh, there's a canine uh, model for one of the LCA variants in which they've been able to uh, introduce the missing gene by coupling the gene to a virus and injecting that virus into the eye, and the virus uh, infects the retina and transfers the gene into the retina. And there's been, uh, you know, if, 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 if those of you who haven't seen it, there's been uh, remarkable um, recovery of vision in these dogs who were formerly blind and underwent these these um, these gene transplant, these gene implant uh, using uh, viruses, the vector. And currently, there are um, there are active um, human clinical trials for LCA um, going on throughout the country. Uh, so, select patients if they have the right um, mutation or the right the right gene problem, uh, get enrolled into. Uh, a particular study where they're they're actually doing this, and uh, uh, about a year ago, the first um, human uh, reports were published um, um, through two groups. One one is the University of Pennsylvania group, and and another um, at the Moorfields Eye Hospital in in England. Uh, they published their work with a limited number of patients, but it was it was very positive. So I think that um, the treatment for LCA is definitely going to be genetic uh, gene therapy treatment. And theoretically, one should be able to do this with all all variants of LCA. Of course, it's, they're, they're not all one um, mutation. There's, there's a bunch of different genetics involved. So the, the job will be to identify the gene for each family and then come up with... Uh, with uh, that gene and couple it to a virus that can can transfer the gene and and do that uniformly. And where might she be able to get that type of blood testing to see if her children have the RPE65 gene defect? Well, you, you can actually um, uh, go go to any any ophthalmologist that practices in with pediatric retinal problems and have. Have your blood drawn and sent. There's actually um, in the in the past couple of years, uh, the NIH has has organized uh, a gene testing network, and um, there are designated laboratories that are certified throughout the country that are um, allowed to process. Um, the the retinal gene um you know information so um what you need to do is um 
you go on their website, uh, the practitioner goes on their website and, uh, and, and enrolls the patient, um, and then send, and then the website tells the practitioner where to send the blood, and uh, it's all processed in a very um, uh, controlled way now. And and w- with with this happening, it, it helps on a national basis to to organize um, all all the patients and to know you know where all the patients are with each mutation, so that when they when uh, the NIH or some investigator comes up with a a, um, a therapy for one type of, of uh, LCA, then all those patients that have that particular type will, can be identified and notified and enrolled. So it's a very powerful uh, way to 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 handle patients throughout the country. Now, I'm sorry, Dr. Bell. I um for as far as my children and as for myself and my husband, we've sent all of our blood to Carver Labs. Do you think that I should also follow through? I'm sorry, which lab? Carver Labs in Iowa. Okay. Well, that's the that's the leading center, yes, the University of Iowa. Right. I was just wondering if I should send it to one of these other agencies that you were talking about, or you think it's... No, because uh, once you send it to one, uh, to, to one lab, uh, then it's it's identified... Uh, by all of them, it's it's all it's in a re- you're you're now in a registry, so it doesn't matter which lab you send it to, um, you will you will you will be put into the registry, and so that um, there's really uh, there's really no need to 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 send blood again. In fact, they won't really process it again once they have your information, because if you send it to a different lab, they should they should already know that you're. Your information is there. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, another question for Dr. Tawanzi. Mm-hmm. Great opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, this is all free information here. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question for one of my students that um, is now 18, has mm-hmm. ROP. He wanted to know... Um, in his good eye, is there anything else that could happen as an adult to that good eye just mm. from having mild ROP at the time when he was an infant? <clears throat> yeah, that, that's actually a very important thing. Um, ROP is a lifelong disease, and uh, complications um, are prevalent and can occur any time. And kids with ROP um, at, are at higher risk, uh, substantially higher risk, for developing late retinal tears and and uh, what we call regmatogenous retinal detachments. Uh, in other words, retinal detachments caused by tears. Uh-huh. So, uh, or they they can also develop traction in the retina late in life. Um, as a cause of retinal detachments, they're they're at risk for uh, glaucoma, for for uh, optic nerve changes, for uh, a form of macular degeneration that can occur. Uh, certainly, cataracts happen, um, keratopathy happens to the cornea. So, um, you know, any child that has significant ROP is uh, never uh released from from our, our practice we 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 see them typically twice a year 
to monitor for all these things. And um, really, there, there's really a, a wide assortment of, of uh, problems that can occur. In fact, on a weekly basis, I am, in addition to seeing new kids with ROP, I'm also managing problems that ha- happen to older kids. So it's really critical that 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 he be uh, monitored, that that eye be you know the the eye the be dilated, and look the retina examined, the pressure checked, you know uh, that they have a thorough exam about every six months. And should be should it be by a retinal specialist? Well, it should be someone who um, um, is very comfortable with managing retinopathy and prematurity. And that, that usually means either a pediatric retina specialist or a pediatric ophthalmologist who has an interest in ROP. Okay, even even as they become adults? Yes. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Hmm. And follow, really good information. You know, a follow-up to that, Dr. Tuamzi, for your older children, children who are 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 and up, Mm-hmm. who have ROP, do you recommend that they not play contact sports such as soccer or basketball? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, we have a lot of kids that, that want to play sports, certainly not all of them, but um, a lot of them want to play sports, and I, I caution them, um, and I, I think it's very individual, uh, but certainly if any child uh, who has significant ROP is going to play something like football or soccer, they absolutely have to wear uh, protective goggles underneath a helmet and a secure helmet with a with a face mask over that. Um, so I, I try not to, you know, say absolutely they can't play because I think sports are such an important thing for kids and their development. Um, but but I do uh, caution them, and you know, if if they're a monocular patient, you know, I I really try to sway them to maybe non-contact sports, um, uh, things like swimming and running and so forth. So um, it is a, it is an important thing, um, and um, you know, ki- some kids. Uh, who are born premature and who've had no treatment for ROP, um, they come in, you know, as teenagers. We see them with very thin peripheral retina. We see them with uh, uh, fibrous traction developing, and uh, you know, I've and and many times the parents, you know, said, "Well, my daughter was born prematurely, but." There was no problem in the hospital, and you know we haven't really had any issues. We haven't seen an ophthalmologist, and then you know she'll be 16, 18 years old and have a major problem. So it's not uh, uh, not all the parents are are uh, aware of this issue, uh, but it's definitely real. Yes. Uh, do we have another question out there? Yes, I have also another question uh, regarding ROP. Uh, as Dr. Tuas explained about uh, uh, the main cause of uh, ROP uh, as a matter of oxygen, I just uh, want to um, ask another um, question about uh, uh, another cause that maybe it's uh, related to the light. Uh, Dr. 
Because as you know, they cover uh, the eyes of the baby in a few weeks, in early, uh, early maybe three, four weeks. Uh, do you think light is also uh, involved with uh, ROP? Yeah, there, there was some there was some thinking uh, about that, that that light may have a role in the development of ROP, uh, but there was actually uh, a formal study done. It's called the Light ROP study that was done in the 80s. It's not referred to much anymore because it really showed that 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 light has actually no impact at all on the development of ROP, either accelerating ROP or diminishing ROP. Uh, our current understanding is that light, light therapy or light, either you know giving light or taking light away, um, doesn't affect the metabolism of the retina sufficiently to alter uh, the disease process. Um, usually when uh, the baby's eyes are covered, in the in the NICUs, um, it's either if they've just recently been dilated or if they're getting some type of phototherapy, in which case um, light may be, uh, you know, intense light may be damaging to to the child's eyes, just as it would in any anyone. Another question, please. Uh, Dr. Tawansi, I have another question. I uh, just wanted to know, um, in the best-case scenario with um, all the stem cell research and uh, retinal chip, what is the uh, the best uh, perspective for preserving a, a child with ROP uh, in their vision? How much vision can um, this research preserve for them? Yeah, well... Um that's really a good question, but it's um, you know difficult to answer. Uh, we we really don't know uh, how how well these techniques will restore vision. Uh, I'm 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 not aware of anyone who's actually put in a, in a chip in an ROPI as of yet. We're still waiting for FDA approval on that, and um, we don't know. Um, you know how well the, uh, the the transplanted retina will integrate with the, the rest of the visual system. We do we do know that um, if you if you you know in, in these uh, these uh, experiments on on mice and rats that you you actually can measure um, biochemical activity once you've done the transplant. But we don't know how the the, the whole uh, the whole system will be orchestrated, and it's a very complicated visual system uh, with so many interconnections between cells. So it, it's kind of uh, it's it's really kind of anyone's guess um, as to how how good the visual potential will be after a transplant. After after a, uh, a chip, you know, we we have adults that have been able to describe what they're seeing, and what they what they see is um, akin to what you see on a scoreboard 
uh, in a stadium where you have spots of light that, that are basically on or off. They don't see, um, as of yet, they don't see colors and they don't see a continuous sort of uh, visual field. They see um, like a grid pattern of of uh, lights but they can they've been able to make out you know letters and and read letters that way are there any other questions uh for Dr. Twanzi Dr. Twanzi I'm wondering in regard to the therapies you've described and you've talked about a few of them the stem cell and the chip and the gene therapy does residual vision when they're young does that play a role? Is that a factor in determining how much vision they'll be able to regain once these therapies have been done? Well, I, I think that's probably uh, a very important thing. Um, in general, um, when we're talking about the therapies that we have, um, it, it helps if you, I mean, the better your baseline level of vision the more likely that the therapy will have a, you know, has a potential for having a, a more positive impact. And, you know, one of the concerns with kids that, you know, if they've lost all vision, well, there, there's going to be some reorganization of the visual pathways um, such that the brain will, will start to enhance other senses and, and, um, you will have some restructuring of of the occipital cortex and and um the radiations you know the nerve the nerve pathways so we don't know how extensive that would be and and whether that would forbid um, you know the, the proper integration of of the stimuli that's coming from the eye so you can't you don't you don't have vision if if it's the eye alone it, it requires the rest of the the neurologic pathways and and a, a large part of the brain is is dedicated towards processing vision um so you know it, i think it is really important to try you know for a child who may have a potential therapy um later down the line that's that's now uh, under investigation, well, I think it's important for that child to to maintain the health of their eyes as best as possible, and not not to dismiss issues like, for example, if they have high pressure, uh, to treat that, even if they don't have sight to to treat the high pressure, so the optic nerve doesn't get damaged, and to to force them to use whatever little vision that they have if they have light perception or hand motion to encourage, to stimulate them, to encourage them to actually put through the effort that's necessary for them on a regular basis so that, so that those, those, uh, so, so that, that neurologic pathway, um, uh, stays as healthy and vibrant as possible so that when new treatment is possible, is possible, then, then it's more likely to be integrated. And I think this also is an, another reason to encourage all of the parents out there, if you do have a child who has retinopathy of prematurity or any other kind of visual condition, to perform the visual stimulation. 
Yes. As Dr. Tawanti says, if we use mm-hmm. the light box with a high conscious mm-hmm. pattern, we stimulate that region of the brain so it's going to increase their prognosis for these other treatments in the future. Uh, Dr. Tawanti, is there a, a website or an email that our, our listeners can get in touch with you if they have other private questions they want to send you? Yes, absolutely. They they can email us um, at uh, office uh, at childrensretina.com. Office at childrensretina.com. That's pl- plural children's uh, without apostrophe. Uh, retina, R-E-T-I-N-A dot com. Okay, great. That's well, probably the best way. This has been very, very helpful, and we really appreciate your time and your busy schedule. And we, we hope that all of you will tune in next month for the next month's Braille Telephone Conference. Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Thanks so much, everyone. I enjoyed thanks, it very much. Thanks so much to both yeah. of you. We really appreciate all your all your expertise. You're very welcome. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Bill. Yes, yes. I think that went real, very nicely. Dick, are you still yeah. there? I'm still here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this tonight. Thank you. For recording this. Everybody, thank you. Bye bye. Good night. Can anyone else on the mic? Good night. Everybody else.